Welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. Detroiter Michael Eric Dyson is a professor and author whose prolific assessments of America's original sins and our struggles to overcome them are always blunt and inspiring. His new book, Tears We Cannot Stop, A Sermon to White Americans, is at once a lecture and a soulful call to action. He joins me now to talk race, America, the past, and the future. Michael Eric Dyson, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you, sir. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. It's great to hear your voice. Um, uh, Let's start with uh, talking about the sort of key messages that you are trying to convey to white America about being black in this country. The title of your book, of course, is quite provocative, A Sermon to to White America. What are you trying to get them to understand? I'm trying to uh, get them to come to grips with a sense of racial privilege, a sense of racial distortion, a sense of how we as a nation have refused to engage um, in a serious and sustained conversation about just what the exact and precise consequences of racial tyranny are, how we have uh, refused to come to grips finally and definitively with enslavement and Jim Crow and all of the horrendous consequences of racial difference and apartheid that this nation has seen. It is not that we don't know that these things existed. It is rather more that we invest in what uh, Gore Vidal uh, called the United States of amnesia, (laughs) a willful forgetfulness of what happened. You know, Barbara Streisand, I would argue, has supplied the theme song. What's too painful to remember, we simply choose to forget. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so that kind of willful and deliberate denial of reality, of the the confronting the most serious features of our racial miasma, is what I'm up to in this book. And I'm trying to ask white brothers and sisters, imagine life from the perspective of those who are in the underbelly of the American dream, who are from the underside of American democracy, and those who are subject to differential treatment that if we take a time or or take a bit of time to reflect on, um, certainly uh, constitute a a different experience than many white brothers and sisters do. That's why perhaps the Starbucks situation reminds us, or the women who are golfing too slow, who have the police called on them, maybe the, the sheer repetition of ludicrous and ridiculous occurrences to ordinary black people doing ordinary things that are subject to the most stringent uh, forms of racial or political or social punishment might provoke people to think about uh, race in a different fashion and white people to come to grips with how unconsciously or implicitly biases and prejudices occur or that they exist in a world that is vastly different from the average black person. Yeah. Uh, so I, I wonder a lot right now how, uh, how open white America is to that conversation. And I guess uh, I go back and forth. As you point out, there are lots of reminders in the news right now about these differences you're talking about, about the historical imbalances and inequalities, uh, about the injustices that are sort of baked into uh, the concept of, of America. And yet, uh, you know, I often hear people push back and say, well, 
Uh, that's not really proof of that. Or uh, th th these things are explained by other dynamics in, in our society. And if you think about uh, the environment that's been created by the current presidential administration, for example, I think which has uh, heightened the acceptability of, of that kind of pushback, it, it really, I guess it really concerns me, uh, you know, how how likely white America is to, to be receptive to the message that you're putting out right now. Well, yeah, that's the truth. But that's always been the truth with white America and racial reality in this country. Do you think there was any greater acceptance of the truth when Martin Luther King Jr. was here? Oh, yes, white people acknowledged that <laughs> and you know, the ways of life were different. Of course they didn't. They said, Negroes are happy. Why are you creating consternation? Why are you people come Martin Luther King Jr.? Why Serving us in Birmingham mm -hmm. or in Albany or Montgomery. What, black people like the way things are. Things are fine. Negroes have a better existence here than they ever would have in Africa. This is the way things are. God intended it to be this way. So white people have displayed uh, an, an astonishingly consistent refusal to acknowledge um, the racial reality before them or to offer up alternative facts. <laughs> fake news about black people from the beginning, long before it became au courant mm -hmm. with this administration. Fake news didn't begin with Donald Trump's trumpeting of ostensibly distorted reality taken for the truth. Oh, my friend, that began in America in 1619. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. that began when white people began to explain to themselves it must have been God who intended for enslavement to occur. That's why God sent us to save you savages in Africa. So if you look at the alternative arguments that white people have made from the beginning of this country, and indeed before in the modern West, you will see a history of strategies, uh, uh, arguments, and beliefs that upon reflection, even 15, 20 years later, certainly a half a century later, look like what they are. The uh, attempts of white people to justify and legitimate and to bring validity uh, to what is essentially um, incontrovertible proof that what they've engaged in is horrendous, evil, problematic, wrong, subversive to American democracy, and destructive of the very values that they claim to hold dear. Yeah. So, so I guess then my question for you is: What's the hope for your book? What's what is your what is uh, the the upside of you know this this magnificent uh, collection of of insights and and storytelling uh, that that all sort of seek to expose uh, white America to this reality. If, if white America is not listening and has never been listening, what is, what is your objective with, uh, with this book? Well, we got to keep trying. We got to keep hoping that there will be crevices and cracks in the, in the foundation that we can usefully exploit. It is not that some, some white people have never listened. Some white people have always listened. The question is, are they the white people that make the difference? Mm -hmm. Can they convince their white brothers and sisters of something wrong here? So that there are many white voices that have insisted that things are different than what the, the majority of white people have made them out to be and to call them to conscience and to call them to response. Martin Luther King Jr., to take another example, because his <clears throat> recent, uh, uh, the recent celebration of his 50th uh, or at least the the anniversary of his 50th, uh, the 50th anniversary of his assassination occurred, when we think about the fact that here was a guy who now is widely celebrated, almost universally, 
as an American hero who mm-hmm. has property on national civic holy ground mm-hmm. in Washington, D.C., that this man was always celebrated and accepted as that. He wasn't. He was seen as the most dangerous Negro in America. That's right. He was seen as a threat to American democracy. So we have hope that things can change, but they can't change automatically. And they can't change if white folk won't do what they've been encouraging everybody else in the world to do. Be responsible. Stop acting like a victim. Take up your own bed and walk. Okay, Jesus said that one. But <laughs> <laughs> so, so the thing is, Will white folk listen to their own messages of agency, responsibility, of not denying the truth before them? The things that they say to Latinos and black people and women and other minorities, and stop kvetching and bellyaching and be responsible for your existence and look to what you can do. This is what we say to white folk. Do what you can do then. Do not accept the racial status quo as the racial necessity. Figure out ways to reorganize the logic of American democracy. And we need more white people of conscience speaking up and speaking out. You know, at the Starbucks the other day in Philadelphia, Mm -hmm. it was white folk who really caused and posted the video and caused the consternation by saying, what the hell? Because they were stunned because they knew this was wrong, that this wouldn't happen to the ordinary white person. Many white people know this. They don't speak up. They don't say it. If you see something, say something. Many white people do not. They see racial injustice occurring. They know they benefit from uh, an unequal distribution of wealth, that their school systems benefit from apartheid, from black and brown kids getting kicked out earlier, from those black bodies being policed, from those bodies being separated and segregated. They know they benefit economically and socially and educationally uh, from apartheid. And if they don't, They benefit from an unconscious privilege that when they are reminded of it, they are resentful of. But that cannot be the ultimate story of American democracy, because we have always often had to fight against the odds to make certain that people would begrudgingly, but substantially, make differences and be forced to make a change. Mm -hmm. That has always been the case in America, and I suspect for the next little while, it will always be the case. Mm -hmm. This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson. My guest is Michael Eric Dyson. He is the author of Tears We Cannot Stop, A Sermon to White America, as well as several other books. 18, I think, is is the total number. Uh, we're talking about his book. We're talking about race in America. We're talking about racial dialogue in America, the opportunity that we may have to have discussions about inequality, uh, about the truth of inequality in American history and the, and the present. Uh, Michael, I want to I want to talk about a specific uh, passage in your book, um, mm-hmm. uh, and this is the this is the one where you uh, recount the story. Uh, of a student who uh, who said something in your sociology seminar. He said, uh, for the first time in my life, I feel guilty about being white. Uh, mm-hmm. And then a little later in that passage, you say, I have over the years developed a pedagogy of the problematic to address the thorny matter of race, whether it is wrestling with the burdens and sorrows that honest talk of whiteness brings or discouraging my black students from the easy retreat into sanctuaries of black solace. I want students to mm-hmm. confront the brutal legacy of race with the kid gloves off and yet respect each other's 
humanity. Such an effort isn't easy. I get scores and scores of letters and emails from white folk who are angered by how my pedagogy of the problematic plays out in the media. They make sure to let me know what a moron I am, how unfortunate my students are to have me as a professor. Okay, let's be honest, at times they might really be true. Uh, How Georgetown should fire me on the spot. They often call me nigger to remind me of the inferior status I keep forgetting to embrace. And many are mad because they say I am trying to warp young people's minds. I'm really curious uh, about the environment in your classroom where you have uh, where you have these 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 conversations. And, and we can talk later about what people's reaction is to that. But in the classroom itself, you have this student uh, come to this uh, this revelation uh, in, in in the class, what was the reaction inside the class to that, and did it lead to the kind of sort of coming to reckon for other students the, uh, that I think you're trying to inspire with this book? Yeah, well, <laughs> that certainly uh, was the case in that particular instance of people trying to engage beyond the limits of their comfort Mm -hmm. uh, and wage, uh, to mix metaphors, into deeper waters that allowed us to, you know, make our way through, swim through Mm -hmm. uh, some of the thorny contradictions to mix the metaphors yet again. (laughs) So the reality is it's tough going out there. (laughs) And um, only if we confront uh, ourselves, the truth of our predicament as a nation, and talk about where we have been, will we be able to confront some of the contemporary problems that persist in this nation? And in my classroom, it is a microcosm of some of those contradictions, but hopefully an even more open-minded one where younger people are able to engage across the barriers of race and class and gender and sexual orientation in productive fashion. But I do not take that for granted. I do not believe that, oh, therefore, because you are younger, automatically there will be greater possibilities. One hopes so. Mm -hmm. But if we look at some of the resurgent bigotry that is now beclouding the nation, if we look at some of the animus toward blackness that stalks the horizon of American political life, a lot of that comes from young white people. So this is not the old fogey type. Mm -hmm. This is not your grandfather's type of bigotry. This is Richard Spencer in crew cuts, so to speak, and Mm -hmm. in finely coiffed... um, attire and uh, a hair and nice attire who's making arguments about the necessity of white supremacy and the division and separation of the races. So I see this as a battleground on which we can, um, you know, argue for the future of this nation by encouraging younger people uh, to take advantage of the resources of the classroom where we can have um, serious and searing conversation that may not be encouraged in the larger world, that may not happen at places of uh, employment when they are true adults, but that is possible to engage uh, in a safe atmosphere. When I say safe, I mean where they will not automatically be written off as racist for believing certain things, nor will they be spared the honest assessment of their beliefs by their fellow students who happen to be students of color. Mm -hmm. So we encourage an open and engaged atmosphere where the grappling with difference and with racial tension and conflict occurs, and yet in that very classroom, the willing confrontation of those issues allows students from all walks of life and from every region and class and geography and color 
to grapple with these truths. Alex in Birmingham, welcome to Detroit Today. Hey, thanks, guys. Yeah. Um, I had a quick question on uh, the concept of white privilege. Um, you know, you had asked earlier, what is the objective with the book? And, you know, I think any reasonably educated person understands the, the racist history, the, the concept of white privilege is real. But when I, I talk to other white people about the concept, I, I feel like the feedback I get is around the word privilege. And if, if you picture somebody working a, a menial labor job, you know, struggling financially, who's white, I think they're really turned off by that word privilege. Uh, even though in reality, privilege can be something so small as not getting arrested while sitting at a Starbucks. Sure, sure. So I'm curious if, if you guys think, you know, there's something with that term uh, in terms of getting large-scale uh, white people to understand what that really means. Yeah, Alex, that's a great that's a great question. I'm glad you called uh, and asked. I, I I think that the word privilege in this society means something uh, quite different than uh, than is meant by the, the the sort of invocation of white privilege uh, we, we tend to associate it with money I think uh, in, in many ways and of course in this case what we're talking about is advantage uh, simple advantage uh, the advantage of skin color uh, not to have to deal with uh, the burdens of of you know, a society that is rendered around the idea of, of inequality. But uh, Michael Eric Dyson, I'll let you uh, address what, what Alex is saying. What about when we say white privilege and people sort of recoil thinking, well, I'm not privileged. Uh, I work hard. I don't have a lot of money and, and I'm trying to get by just like everybody else. Yeah. Um, well, first of all, let's uh, thank uh, Alex for calling in and making such a, a, a you know, a graceful uh, gesture of interpretation mm-hmm. and nuance and distinction uh, that begs us to 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 address it uh, sincerely and all people who deploy that term. Mm-hmm. But but let's all already admit, come on now. So there's a term that all white people agree to. Oh yeah yeah yeah. That's, that's it. That's what we do. Yeah yeah. That's it. Yes, we're racial astronauts. No no. Um, we 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 take advantage of things. It's not privilege. It's advantage we have. No, it's racial benefit. Come on. There's no word that exists that most white people would naturally and necessarily gravitate toward in acknowledgement of the history of racial animus and inequality and the subsequent granting of privilege, advantage, benefits, stability, security Mm -hmm. that that whiteness grants. However, having said what Brother Alex uh, talked about, let's, let's be honest, when he said a small thing like not being arrested at Starbucks, slow down. That ain't small. Sure. <laughs> Slow down. That's not small at all. I know what Alex means, I'm relatively speaking, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, not like the privilege of inheriting millions of dollars. Not like the privilege of generational wealth. Not mm-hmm. like true. Not like the privilege of being granted access to schools. I get what he meant. But in the ordinary world of ordinary black people, not to be messed with by the police is big. It's everything, right? It's my God. It, we, you know, we, okay, here it is. Look at everything we've been arrested for. Uh, golfing too slow. Is that what happened to black women of the day who were members of a club? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, arrested while sitting, sitting while black. How about being president of the United States of America while black? Because <laughs> then guys call you out for your birth certificate. Mm-hmm. Uh, selling Lucy cigarettes, uh, selling CDs, breathing, playing with a toy in the park. Brother Alex, please understand that there are no perfect ways to approach 
the quantification of advantage that is bestowed upon white brothers and sisters or the kind of social privileges that exist, advantages, benefits, um, you know, and, and, and as a result of that, if white brothers and sisters get caught up on a term as opposed to a reality, right? If, 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 if my, I, I try to be an ally, um, to women in this culture and around the issue of gender. Mm-hmm. Am I really going to be, be upset if I go, they use the word male, male supremacy and male privilege. Well, I'm a black man in America. I don't run anything in America. I'm not in control of the institutions of government. And so, are, you, are you kidding here? Are you, <laughs> are you kidding? Like, but as a black man, do you benefit from the fact that if you walk from your house to your garage, that you are not arbitrarily subject to forces of oppression or rape, that you could potentially be assaulted sexually? When right. you walk down the street, are you? Do you have cat calls at you? Okay, I do get them occasionally. But, but the point is, <laughs> right? The point is, most men, of course, even as a black man, I understand what that means. So part of what it means to be willing to interrogate one's own privilege, one's own advantage, one's own supremacy—we could call that instead of saying white privilege, we could say, look, that's just a nice term for white supremacy. Right. Most white well, people benefit right. from white supremacy. No. So, so yeah, I, I understand the necessity of getting it right, getting the language precise, not alienating unnecessarily white allies who are potentials. But part of what it means to be a potential ally is to say, suck it up, beat up, come on. This is, <laughs> this, is, this is big league. This ain't touch football. This is, what, this is the draft last night. This is what happens with Baker Mayfield and Saquon Barkley. This is real football. So come on, y'all. Let's let's stop being the very thing that many white people accuse black people and people of color of being soft, too and, sensitive, you know, like, right? And, and oh my God, you're you're insulting me. Come on, mm. let's grow up and grow into a full, mature awareness of the issue of race. The greatest white privilege that exists in this contemporary culture is the ability to encounter a police person and live. Right. Right. That. Yeah. It does not depend upon how much money you have or what region you live in or your geographical location. It depends upon your whiteness, and that's the kind of thing we're talking about. Yeah, yeah. Alex, again, thanks very much for listening and uh, for calling in. Great point, Alex. Great point. Let's go to uh, Bill. Bill, who is driving in Southfield. Bill, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you very much, Stephen. Dr. Tyson, how are you? I'm very happy to hear from you. Um, so in 1968... Or 1967, immediately after the revolt here in Detroit, I was an undergrad at Wayne State University, and I took a class in race relations. It was the first class I ever walked into where I was a minority student based on race. It was about a 60-40 split. It was the most unbelievably um, traumatic class I ever took. It was run by a Ph.D. minister who who eventually founded the church that Wendell Anthony is now the pastor of. Mm. And it was a church where uh, it was a it was a classroom where volatility was the name of the game. People standing on chairs uh, screaming at one another, white people, black kids screaming at one at at the white kids. It was absolutely chaotic, unbelievable. (laughs) and one of the biggest growth experiences I ever went through in my entire life. (laughs) Not only that, but what happened was the class was out of control, and the minister realized that he wasn't accomplishing what he wanted to accomplish and get through the material. So he selected 12 of us to go to his church every Saturday morning from 8 o'clock until (laughs) noon. It was a core group of people to discuss exactly what needed to be discussed. 
after we, we tried to get through the material, we didn't get through it. And then what was coming at us and how we were going to handle that. And he was going to use us as the kids in the classroom to try to get through this stuff. By God, that was a, that was an experiment. Wow. And, wow. and I was amazed at the end of that. The white kids that I knew that were in that class, there was a 180 degree turn in their mentality. Mm. And it goes directly to Dr. Tyson's point about the classroom being the place where this kind of stuff has to take place. Yeah. But that's the, the definition of a classroom in my mind is not necessarily <laughs> at the university. It, it talks about the fundamental issue here, and that's dialogue. That is exposing what this virus is within our culture that continues to denigrate a population. I don't understand that. I don't know how people can't get beyond that. It is absolutely incredible to me that Bill, uh, Bill, I really, really appreciate uh, your call and and the comments in that story. That's a wonderful story about that class and and you know would that uh, that more people could uh, could experience things like that and and have mm-hmm. that you know, that kind of uh, transformation. I guess uh, yeah is the is the word that we're using here. Michael Eric Dyson, author of Tears We Cannot Stop: A Sermon to White America. As always, it is great to hear your voice, Michael Eric Dyson, and to hear your thoughts here on our airwaves. Thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me, my friend. Always a pleasure. That's going to do it for us on Detroit Today. This is 1019 WDET, Detroit's public radio station, a community service of Wayne State University.